The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you all being here this morning. Okay, we are back in 1 John this morning. I know that's a little bit different, but it's been a while. And since it's been a while, let me ask you a question. What is the purpose of this book? Why is John writing 1 John? Oh, very good, class. The Gospel of John has an evangelistic thrust. Well, 1 John is written for believers. It's about discipleship. It's about fellowship. When John writes the Gospel, he states that his purpose is evangelistic. He's trying to lead his listeners into faith in Christ. But when he comes to his epistle, as chapter 5, verse 13 tells us, he's talking to people who have already come to faith in Christ, but he's trying to lead them into a deeper understanding, into a closer intimacy with their Father. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe. He's writing to Christians. In the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, that these things is not referring, I don't think, to the whole epistle, but to verses 6 through 12 that deal with the subject of believing. Now, the words to you who believe in the name of the Son of God do not mean to those of you who believe. The Greek here means to you believers. So, nowhere in this epistle does John even hint that he thinks some of his readers might not be Christian. The intended audience of the epistle's believers. And they are not in danger of losing eternal life, because that cannot be lost. But they are in danger of damaging their fellowship with Yeshua and the Father. So again, I see the purpose of this letter as fellowship. Helping us to learn how to grow, how to walk with the Lord on a daily basis. Now, there are several terms in this epistle that John uses as synonyms. He talks about fellowship with God. He talks about knowing God. Abiding in Christ or in God. Seeing God. These terms all describe the experience of Christians. They all describe our relationship with God in varying degrees of intimacy. You know, our relationships with people vary. Some more, some less intimate. Well, fellowship with God is also a matter of greater or lesser intimacy. When we speak of being in fellowship or out of fellowship, I think we're oversimplifying our relationship with God. For example, a child's fellowship with his or her parents is rarely either perfect or non-existent. It's usually somewhere in between those extremes. It may vary from day to day. All Christians possess eternal life, but not all experience that life as God intended them to. In John 10, 10, Yeshua says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's what He wants for us. That happens when we walk in fellowship. Now, John's subject concerns true and false versions of fellowship with God. It's not an invitation to introspective doubts concerning your salvation. And that's how a lot of people interpret 1 John. It's about, oh, finding out who's saved and who's not saved. That's not it at all, okay? It's written to Christians. Now, we spent two weeks looking at the first half of 5.1, so I don't want to belabor that, but let me touch on a few things, okay? Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, loves whoever, has been born of Him. As I've said several times, this verse teaches us something very important about the doctrine of soteriology. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. That's an important doctrine. It's something we want to understand. He says, everyone who believes, and he uses the present tense, meaning everyone who is presently believing in Yeshua has been born of God. This is a perfect tense, which generally refers to an event in the past time, the result of which persists to the present. So we have a present tense, we have a perfect tense. And the perfect tense would indicate that that represented by the perfect tense is an event that occurred previous to the other. The tenses make it clear that the divine begetting is the antecedent 
not the consequent of believing, has been born of God is a perfect passive indicative which emphasizes a culmination of action produced by an outside agent. Who's that agent? Yahweh. Okay, this has been the birth. You have been born. That was caused by an outside agent. That's God's work, all right? And you've been born into a permanent state of being. So let me try to paraphrase it like this. Everyone who is presently believing in Christ has been in the past born of God and will forever be His child. This verse teaches that faith is the result. Faith is the evidence of being born again. I want to keep stressing that until we got that locked in our heads, all right? It's not that being born again is the result of faith. And that's how most of the church sees soteriology. I come to a point, I believe, and because I believe, God gives me life and now I'm a Christian. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way, all right? This verse teaches that birth precedes believing. The reason you believe is because you have been born of God. Now, when we talk about birth preceding belief, we're talking about the Ordo Salutis. You're familiar with that, right? We've talked about it before. Ordo Salutis is Latin for the order of salvation. And the Ordo Salutis deals with the logical sequence or steps or stages involved in salvation of a believer. And again, they're logical sequences. You look at the Word of God, we see that these things happen, we put them in a logical order. It has to do, and and it's important because it has to do with who made the first move in our salvation. See, the wide spectrum of modern Christianity insists that any and every saved person had to make the first move. Like God's just sitting up in heaven, He's just waiting for you to do something. He needed to reach out in faith to God, but that's not what the Bible teaches. So this issue of Ordo Salutis is not just a technicality like the riddle, which came first, the chicken or the egg. It actually answers the question, to whom do we give the glory for our salvation? God or ourselves? And that, to me, is a very important question. Let me run through the biblical Ordo Salutis just really quickly. And if you want more in-depth on this, we got a whole message just dealing with the Ordo Salutis. But it starts out with foreknowledge. This people is Hebrew, okay? It has nothing to do with God looking ahead and seeing what you'll do, and you did this, so He'll do that. Okay, that has nothing. Foreknowledge doesn't mean that. To foreknow a person has to do with having an intimate relationship with them. It is to choose them. Foreknowledge or knowledge is a Hebraic concept that has to do with intimacy. You know, the Bible says, Adam knew his wife. Okay, that doesn't mean, hey, that's my wife over She's the only woman around. Of course she knows who his wife is. New is a, symbol, a sign of intimacy. In other words, they had relations together. They produced a child. So to foreknow is to love. And then secondly, we have predestination. The Scriptures also call this election. It's the idea of God choosing whom He loves. Choosing them to be part of His family. Choosing them to be in His presence. Now, foreknowledge and predestination took place in eternity past before you ever came into existence. Before you ever were born, God loved you and chose you. Then you were born, and you were born into a state of death. Okay, because every human being ever born is born in sin, separated from God. It's important for us to understand that even though we were loved and chosen, we were born into the world in a state of death, born under the wrath of God. And then we have calling or the new birth. Now the calling is an effectual calling. God calling dead men to life. This is regeneration. This is spiritual resurrection. In the Ordo Salutis, we were physically born spiritually dead. Okay, got that? Born into a state of death. Then at some point in our life, God called us. This is an effectual call. It's a call from death to life. Now this effectual call, regeneration is by grace without means. Okay, it's a supernatural act. God gives a person a new heart. He takes those who are in a state of death and He gives them life. There's nothing you can do to give yourself life. God has to do this. Man is passive in the new birth. He does no more to produce his own birth 
than Lazarus did to produce his own resurrection. When Christ stood at the tomb of Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forth! How could he come forth? Well, God just gave him life, and then he could come forth. And that's the same thing. The calling for us is life. He gives us life. And then we have faith. Because after we experience the birth, we believe. Faith is understanding and assent to the propositions of the Gospel. Now let me just add here what I think is just plain common sense. You cannot believe what you don't know. You cannot believe what you don't understand, what you've never heard. That's why, you know, in Romans 10, he says, how shall they hear unless someone preach? How shall they preach unless they be sent? So someone's got to take the gospel to them because they can't believe what they don't know. Faith is belief in, trust in Christ, and Christ alone for our salvation. What's the next step? What happens after we believe? Salvation, okay? Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ, and what will happen? You will be saved. Now again, these are logical orders, okay? You know, you're thinking, well, in my life, this, you know, you don't, you don't experience these, okay? Especially the first two. You were not around when the first two happened, but you know you were in a state of death, and all of a sudden, you were aware of things of God. You exercise faith. Because of faith, you got salvation. The last step is glorification. Being glorified is essentially being delivered from sin and sin death and being restored into the the perfection that Adam had in his pre-fall condition in the presence of God. Being in the presence. That's the ordo salutis, the logical order of salvation. And we look at it with our verse in 1 John. We see that everyone who believes, that's faith, and that comes after the calling. Has been born. So you got the calling first. The next step is the faith. And like I said, the majority of the church has this backwards and they believe you have to believe first and then you will get new life. But, how do dead men do anything? If you're dead, if that truly is what the Bible calls spiritual death, and and of course you're physically alive, you're relating to your environment, you're relating to your world, but spiritual death is you have no relationship with God, okay, because you've been separated from Him because of Adam's sin, all right? So the new birth precedes a person believing. Now, what the first half of 1 John teaches us is that what defines a Christian is his or her faith in Christ. Please mark that down and make a mental note. What defines a Christian is faith. It's not lifestyle. It's not good works. It's not obedience. What defines a Christian is faith. One commentator writes this, The vital signs of the new birth are faith in Jesus Christ, love for others, and obedience to God's commands. Yeah, that's not true. This is not what the verse says. There's nothing in that verse about obedience. There's nothing in that verse about love. The mark of a Christian is faith. We'll talk about this more in a minute. All right, But he says everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ. So we need to spend a minute here to understand what he's talking about here. Because the essence of the false teacher's error that John was, John was writing against false teaching that was taking place in this church. All right, And it, the false teaching centered around the person and work of Christ and His deity. See, the opponents would have problems with the unique and unqualified application of the title Messiah to Yeshua during his earthly career and ministry. Let's back up in 1 John 4, 1-3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets are gone on into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay, that's how you know the one's from God. This is what they say. And every spirit that does not confess that Yeshua confess Yeshua, is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. All right, the test which John gives to his readers relates to what the cessationists, his opponents, were teaching. This is a doctrinal test. Notice that John did not say, you can tell the false spirits by their works. 
No, he didn't say that at all. He said you identify them by their message. What are they teaching? This was the acid test of a false prophet under the old covenant as well, according to Deuteronomy 13, 1-5. What are they teaching? This is the essential doctrinal test for false teachers whom John was combating in this book. What do you think of Yeshua, the Christ? That's the test. This is the criterion that eliminates a host of heresies. When John states, every spirit that confesses that Yeshua, the Christ, has come in the flesh is from God, he is referring not only to his true deity, but also his true humanity. See, because the false teachers, they wanted to either deny his deity or deny his humanity. The Docetics taught that matter, all matter is evil, thus Yeshua wasn't really physical. He was a spirit being who seemed to be real. He was a phantom, so to speak. He couldn't be material because they viewed all materials evil. Now, the Serinthian Gnostics, whom John was probably combating, taught that Yeshua was a mere man. Okay, so they believed in his physical existence. He's just a man. And they believed that the Christ was a divine emanation that came upon him at his baptism and left just before his crucifixion. See, Yeshua was not literally the Christ and the Son of God. They believe that sort of a phantom affair kind of thing. He only appeared to be God's Son in the flesh. He was not literally so. But right away we see that this eradicates the truth that Christ came in the flesh. John is clear that anyone who does not believe this truth is not of God. All right? People are so important that we understand who Christ is and believe that. Now, he says, Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh. The perfect tense affirms that Yeshua's humanity was not temporary. It was permanent. This is not a minor issue. Yeshua is truly one with humanity, and He's one with God. Has come implies His pre-existence as the eternal Son of God. Now, the false teachers, they tried to divide Yeshua from the Christ. In their opinion, Christ was God, but Yeshua, He was just a man. They taught that God could not die. Therefore, the Christ didn't die. And those who think like this are not born of God, according to 1 John. Look at what John taught in his Gospel, the very first verse of his Gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This statement couldn't be clearer. In fact, these four Greek words may be the clearest declaration of the deity of Christ in all of Scripture. The Greek verb "ami" was, means to be or to exist, and suggests continued existence. So he's saying the Word always existed as Yahweh. John doesn't say, and the Word was divine, and the Word was like God. He makes the bold statement, the Word was always God. And here he leaves no room for anyone to see Yeshua as less than God in some way or to some degree. The Word literally was Yahweh. Yahweh is God. Yeshua is God. Yahweh in a body. He's the manifestation of God in the flesh. Nothing less. The full mysterious deity of Christ exemplified in humility and unbelievable condescension that God became a man for the sole purpose of dying. And so at the very beginning, John lays it down that Yeshua is the living Word. He alone is the perfect revelation of Yahweh. Now it's at this point that Yeshua is Yahweh that the Arian controversy of the early church and some contemporary pseudo-Christian cults deviate from the biblical perspective. The heretic Arius and his modern disciples, the Jehovah Witnesses, argue that Yeshua was not eternal. Rather, He was the first created being. On the basis of a flawed and inconsistent interpretation of the Greek text, this last phrase in verse 1 is translated, the word was a God. See, they throw a little word in there. It's not there. and then they go through all kinds of exegetical gymnastics trying to prove that that that's true, but anyone who knows Greek can deal with that. It's just simply not true, all right? They want to reduce Christ to a being less and different than God. Jehovah Witnesses deny the eternality of the Son, and in that sense, they're Arian in their Christology. They deny the Trinity. They deny the deity of the Son of God as well. 
The Mormons also deny the deity of the Son of God. They speak of Him as the Son of God, but they deny His eternity. They deny the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I don't say this to be mean, because I'm not mean, right, Kat? But anyone who denies the deity of Yeshua or denies the Trinity is just not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? David Flusser, who was a devout Orthodox Jew, he was a professor of early Christianity and Judaism of the Second Temple period at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, he said this, You poor Christians, you wonder why the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God more often. It says it all the time. You just don't understand Jewish thought. That, that phrase is so powerful, people. This is where we mess up. We don't understand the Hebrew culture, which the Bible came out of, and therefore we don't understand the Bible. Because we take the Hebrew phrases and we put them in our vernacular, and then we're like, well, I know what that means. No, you don't. Because it comes from a Hebrew mindset. Let me give you just an example of kind of what he's talking about here. In Revelation 1.8, Yeshua says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, which he didn't really say, because that's Greek. He said, I'm the Aleph Tav. Okay, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. So Yeshua is saying, I'm from eternity to eternity. And that's how the Jews would express that. The Aleph and the Tav, first and last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, if we go back to Isaiah, we read this. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there's no God. Okay, now, so who is the first and the last? Is it Yahweh or is it Yeshua? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeshua is claiming when He says, I'm the Aleph Tav, He's claiming to be Yahweh of hosts, the only living and true God. Wayne Grudem writes this. Although our finite minds cannot comprehend the mystery of the Trinity, Scripture is clear that God is one, God, who exists in three distinct persons. Each, per, each person is fully God, and yet He is not three gods, but one God. You know, it's just important that we understand the Trinity. A lot of people think that's a Christian invention. But if you understand the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrews believed in the Trinity until the time of Christ. You know why they stopped believing in the Trinity? Because Christ was one member of it, and they didn't like that, so they just, we got to erase that doctrine from our whole vocabulary, okay? Because this guy is claiming to be part of that Trinity, and no, we can't accept it, so they did away with that teaching. But prior to that, they understood, you know, the three powers in heaven. All right, John goes on to say in our text, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now, some commentators try to make this phrase refer to the Father loving Yeshua, but I don't think it's best to see that here. I think John's point is here that your love for God and your love for children, His children, are inextricably bound together. If you love the Father, you love the Father's children, right? Because you love the Father. You can't divorce the first and second commandment. The first commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Love Him as yourself. And John is at pains to show you cannot divorce love for God for love for your brother and vice versa. I think a clear application of verse 1 is that we need to love all that have truly been born of God. If there is evidence that a person is a child of God, then he's our brother and we need to love him. Now, I just said if there's evidence, what would the evidence be? Thank you. Faith. That's the evidence. That's the evidence of the new birth. If they're demonstrating faith, if they believe that Yeshua is the Christ, guess what? They're doing that because they've been born again. They're children of God. You're obligated to love them because you have the same Father. We need to accept them the way Christ accepted us. In Romans 15, 7, he says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Boy, think about that. How did Christ welcome you? When you came, he put all kinds of restrictions on you, didn't he? 
hey, look, you can be my kid if you do this and you do that and you do... No. He just welcomed you with open arms and he says, you can need to welcome one another. John goes on to say, in verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Now this verse along with 3, verse 3, repeats one of the major themes of 1 John, which is love. Now at face value, This verse seems to be the opposite of 420. He says this in 420. If anyone says, I love God, you ever heard anybody say that? People say it all the time, right? Oh, I love God. And hates his brother, he's a liar. Now, I didn't say that. John said that. Okay? God said that. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's some strong stuff, isn't it? Here John says that you can't love God if you don't love your brother. But in 5.2 he states that you can know that you love your brother when you love God. You're like, John seems to be saying in 5.2 that our motive for loving the children of God should be genuine love for God in obedience to His commandments other than the reason we love others should not be natural factors. Okay, oh, I love them because they're just lovable. Okay, that's not what he's saying here. He said, you need to love them because you're living in obedience to the commands of God and you love them, whether they're lovable or not. Now, John's thought here appears to go in a circle. This is perhaps because the two things are involved. He says, as far as he's concerned, they cannot exist one without the other. All right, you can't love God and keep his commandments without loving the children of God. And you can't love the children of God without loving God and keeping His commandments. Got that? They all go together. Okay? You know, even though we may have little in common with some Christians, doctrinally, practically, however way, we're still called to love them. Because we share the same parent and because we're members of the same family. I know that siblings don't always get along, but In the family of God, we're called to get along. We're commanded to get along. How can we love another Christian when we don't particularly like them? You ever been there? Well, the key is the meaning of love. Loving our brethren doesn't mean you have warm, fuzzy feelings about them. Okay, God's not commanding your feelings in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't have anything to do with affection. God doesn't require us to feel equally affectionate towards all the brethren. But He does require us to do what is best for them. And as we've seen, biblical love is primary, primarily a self-sacrificing commitment to seek the other person's highest good. That's biblical love. You don't have to have affection. You don't have to have all these nice, warm feelings. It's okay. Self-sacrificing commitment for the other person's highest good. What will really benefit them? In verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, the force of the genitive here, and let me get technical for just a minute, of God, because people argue, what does this mean? It could be objective, it could be subjective, it could be both. I think here it refers to our love for God, which is an objective genitive, not the love of God for us, which would be the subjective genitive. And here an objective makes more sense because the previous verse, it's clear that God is the object of the believer's love. He says, we love God. And then this is the love. This is how we love God. We keep His commandments. Now, one commentator commenting on these two verses writes this. Obedience to God's commandment is a vital sign of the new birth. Is that true? No, people. It's not true. We've been trying to push this. The sign of the new birth is what? Faith. That's the sign. Faith. The only sign of the new birth, faith. We've seen that in this epistle so far. Listen, you say, well, shouldn't Christians be obedient? Absolutely. But obedience to God's command is a sign of what? It's a sign of their love. Okay? So there's Christians out there, and they trusted God. They, they have become, they're born again, and they trusted God, and they're Christians. They don't love God too much. Why? Because they're not keeping His commandments. And we have kind of lumped it all together now and we look at someone and they do something that, depending on what church you came from, you know, if that's 
taboo, then they can't do that. And it can be anything. It could be playing cards, ladies wearing slacks. I mean, all these things in the church history have been, you do that, you're, I remember, <laughs> Kathy and I had friends from our church we were going to at the time over to play spades, and they were like deer in the headlights, like, what, you know, and we're trying to explain to them, well, the, you know, how spades work, and they're like, which one's the spade? Which one's the heart? I'm like, the heart, come on, you can figure that out. I you know, <laughs> but I mean, they'd never seen a deck of cards before. Because in the church they came from, that was evil. And some of you know this. You've been in these backgrounds, you know. And, and, this is, and this is how they evaluate who's a Christian and who's not. If you see someone smoking, not a Christian. Okay? Because Christians don't smoke or chew or run with girls that do. Okay? They, you know, we got these little things that we put up there that you know, tells us who's holy and who's not. Through the Bible, the sign of a Christian is faith in Christ. And we need to learn to start accepting people who are different than us because they're part of the family of God. Not because they line up to all the things we line up to. I mean, good friends of ours, they never read the paper on Sunday. They never did anything on Sunday. They weren't allowed to do a thing. Sunday came, they went to church, and then they just sat. They weren't allowed. I'm serious. They weren't allowed to play. They weren't allowed to do so many things. Because that's the culture the background they came out of. I mean, there's a church right here in Virginia Beach. It's got a sign on the door. Women are not allowed in that church if they got slacks on. So that's how you tell a true Christian woman. They got a dress on, okay? See, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, okay? But obedience to the commands, and when I say commands, I'm talking about God's commands, okay? It's amazing. There's a lot of things in the Bible that God wants us to do. We don't need to add a bunch of stuff. We don't need to make up a bunch of crazy things and here's what you got to do to be a Christian. No, not at all. 1 John 2, 3 and 4, look at this says. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. Now, this is very problematic for a lot of people, Right? Because these verses are often taken as a way of knowing whether or not we're really saved, whether we're Christians. See, if we have come to know Him, so by come to know Him, they think, well, that means I'm a Christian, right? I know who God is. They're Christian because they keep the commandments. Do you really want to make that the standard? Commandment keeping? Because there's a lot of them. All of them? Do we keep all the commandments? People say, I'm a Christian because I obey. Do you obey all of them? Let me show you one. Just pick out one here. 1 John 3.11 This is the message you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. So let's just stop there. Okay? We should love one another. How you doing with that one? Now before you answer, let's clarify what love is. Okay? Let's look at Paul. Love is patient. Love is kind. Wow. That cuts out a lot of our society, doesn't it? <laughs> Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's easy to say love until you start defining it here. But first of all, it's kind, and it doesn't insist on its own way. We could say Love is not selfish. Uh-oh. <laughs> this means... <laughs> that was good timing. <laughs> this means the loving person is willing to forego their own comfort, their own preferences, their own schedule, their own desires for the benefit of the person loved. Yeah, okay. Should I, should I move on here? So do you know that you're a Christian because you love others? No. The view that this verse is to be taken as a way of knowing whether or not you're really saved would certainly cause a believer to doubt their salvation. And please, there's nowhere in the Bible where God wants you to doubt your salvation. He wants you to know it for sure. Absolutely. Because if you doubt it, how good a Christian life are you going to live when you're not really sure you're even a Christian? Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm really one anyway, so what's the point, right? This view also flies directly in the face of Johannian theology, according to which we're saved by believing in Christ. John 
5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You believe? You get eternal life. Eternal life is by grace through faith and works play no part. Now, the text here, the text, the test suggested by 1 John 2.3 is not the saving knowledge of God. And that's how most people interpret this. It's of experiential knowledge of God. And to get this wrong is to completely miss the meaning of this whole epistle. To know Him? Now, I know, with us, we think of knowing Him means I trusted Him. That's not what this means. We have to understand, what is John? How does John use this? Because he's writing this. In 1 John, the verb to know, gnosko, is used a number of times in different contexts where knowing has various shades of meaning. Now, in our text, John uses know in the Hebrew sense of personal relationship. Remember, we talked about this already. The Hebrew know means to have an intimate relationship with. So, knowing God for John is talking about fellowship with God. It's talking about walking in the light, 1 John 1.7. It's talking about being in Him, abiding in Him. When he says you know Him, it's the same thing John is saying as you're walking in fellowship with Him. You, in other words, he's saying you know Him in an intimate way. There's a love relationship there. These are all parallel versions of a single claim to be in an intimate relationship with God. John uses know here as a synonym for fellowship. For John, loving obedience is a natural result of fellowship with God. You're walking in communion with God. And so naturally, you just want to obey His commands. He's talking about our communion here, not our union. Our union is permanent. Our union is unchangeable. Our communion can fluctuate. Now the Greek here reads like this. By this we know that we have known Him, perfect tense. Something done in the past. Because we are keeping His commandments, present tense. So the present willingness to keep His commands, John is saying, is a sign that you're walking in fellowship with Him. And listen, that's how we know we've come to know Him, because we keep His commandments. But if you say, I know Him, but I'm not keeping His commandments, you're basically saying, I'm in fellowship with God. No, you're not. I love God. No, you don't. Okay? We've not come to know Him. Now, keep here is a translation of the Greek word tereo, which means to keep watch upon, to guard, to watch over protectively. You know, we think of keeping the commandments like, I just got to do this thing. Oh, it's the idea of you're protecting your life because I want to make sure I don't violate this. I want go over this. I want to guard. I want to watch. I want to keep this because this is precious to me. It's a present subjunctive, which means it's continual. There's a continual sense in which you exercise the guardianship of the commandments because they're precious to you. Because I'm walking in fellowship. I want to commune with my God. And I know He doesn't like me doing this. Now John uses entol here, translated as command, 14 times in John. Sometimes it's in the singular form. Other times in the plural. When you use it in the singular form, it always refers explicitly to Christ's commands that His followers should love one another. That's what He wants from us, okay? And in 2.4, we see here that knowing God and keeping His commands are inextricably linked together. John states that keeping His commands is one of the ways we know that we know Him. All right? This is the love of God. What is the love of God? We keep His commandments. Now, when John wrote this, he no doubt had the words of Yeshua in his mind. Because in John 14, Yeshua said this, If you love me, Maybe you will, maybe you won't. If you love me, what will you do? You'll keep my commandments. Now I hear people say that all the time. Oh, I love God, and I'm like, and I, I know, I'm not um, the gentlest at times, but I would just say, no, you don't love God. Based on Scripture, you don't love God. Because you know they're living in sin, or I know they're living in sin, and I'm like, you can't say you love them. You can say you're a Christian, but you can't say you love them. Because you can't go on in sin when you love Him. Now in John 14, this chapter that he says this, he makes similar statements about love for Him and obedience for Him over 
and over. Just in case we don't we we miss it here. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 14, 15. Then in 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. That's how you know who's loving me. Then in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Because that's that's how you're going to know. 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Then he says, if you love me, you ought to rejoice because I'm going to the Father. So three times he says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. This means that Yeshua neither assumes that his followers love him or assumes they don't, but if they do, it'll be manifest by them keeping his word. Now, believers, if someone is not living in obedience to Christ's teachings, do they love him? No. And again, we have to separate this from salvation because we say, oh, you're sinning, you're not a Christian. That's ridiculous. Do you know any Christians that don't sin? So, you know, you want to make this, and of course, you know, if they do things we don't do, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, okay? So in your area of strength, you're not doing that sin, you're good there, but they're violating your area of strength, so you're like, I'm writing them off, they're not a Christian. But they got areas of strength, and you're failing there, so it's like, you know, don't do that, people. Love is not a feeling, it is obedience to the revealed will of God. If you don't obey the Word of God, the Bible says you don't love God, no matter what you say. So you really shouldn't be singing, oh, I love Jesus, unless you're living in obedience to His Word. And some of, this, some of the hymns, you know, they tried, but, you know, I don't like singing about our feelings, okay, because those are so flug. I'd rather sing about God, sing about who He is. You know, you ever sung, I Surrender All? Man, I'll tell you, from the time I became a Christian, we'd be in church, and I'd be like, I'm not singing that. That's a lie. (laughs) I mean, really, I just couldn't do it, you know? Everybody's, I surrender all. No, you don't. Why are you saying that? I guess it's okay to lie in church. I don't know. But I mean, we need to, the hymns need to reflect the truth of who God is. Our songs need to reflect the truth. You know, because like I said, our feelings, they change a lot. And to say that, okay, maybe at that point, Maybe at that moment you are surrendering all, okay? Keep singing it all day long, all right? (laughs) But we have to, we're called to live in obedience to his teaching. Loving God consists in keeping his commandments, all right? And he says, for this is the love of God. And and this is a Hina clause. It has the Hina clause as its referent. And the Hina clause is epigetical, meaning it's explanatory to the preceding phrase, explaining what the love of God consists of. He says that we keep His commandments. So that's what the love of God is. That's what the language is saying here. All right. So believer, it's easy to test our love for God, how committed we are being completely obedient to His will. That's the measure of our love. Love for God, love for God's children in this verse is essentially defined as obedience, keeping the commandments. It's not as much how we feel about God. Feelings fluctuate. How we feel about other believers. It's how we choose to relate to them that's critical. And he says, His commandments are not burdensome. Are Christ's commands burdensome to you? The term burdensome is a figurative way of describing a commandment that's difficult. In other words, man, that's grievous. That's difficult. I can't do that. Now, the test of the genuineness of your love for the children of God is whether you let the commandment of God govern your relationship with them and whether these commandments are burdensome to you or not. You know, when you really love someone, the things they ask of you, they're not difficult because you love them. I want to do that for you. I want to know what you want so I can do it for you. That's the same with God. You want to know, what does God want of me? It's in the Bible. I want to do this because, Lord, I love you. I want to please you. Now, to an immature believer, God's commands may be restrictive. Just like to a child. You tell a child, don't put your hand on the hot stove. Kid thinks, well, you're such a mean parent. I really would want to put my hand on that stove. Why can't I put my hand on the stove? What joy would I get out of putting my hand on the stove that you're trying to keep me from? And so he goes and puts his hand on the stove. And then he realizes, maybe mom and dad have more sense than I do, okay? And they're not trying to be restrictive. They're trying to be protective. And people, God knows, boy does God know, 
the damage that sin brings to our life in every area. And so he, rest- he wants us to restrict our lives from that because he doesn't want us to live miserable, damaged lives. He wants us to have life abundantly. But it comes from obedience. And when you, again, when you're in love with him, it's not a burden. These things aren't burdensome. They're just guidelines to help me walk in intimate fellowship with my God. All right, verse 4 says, we'll end here. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Now, believers, we're overcomers. Okay? Twice, in verse 4, it identifies believers as those who have overcome the world. And once again in verse 5, we're overcomers. This is a descriptive term. And people, I believe that this applies to us today. Christians today, if you've trusted Christ, you're an overcomer. Through faith. But, here's what I want to remind you of. John is writing to the first century saints who were in the midst of a spiritual battle. They're in a battle and he's telling them in the midst of a difficult battle, you're overcomers. Nothing's going to stop that. Okay? I don't care how intense the battle gets. Nothing will stop that. Look at... Look with me at what Paul said to the Ephesian believers in the first century. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces and evil in heavenly places. This verse is addressed to the first century saints and to them alone. Why? Because this battle that they were in ended. Paul tells them that they're not fighting flesh and blood. It's a battle with spiritual forces It's talking about the divine council and the battle that was going on between Yahweh and the lesser gods in the first century. And I believe that the battle that the first century saints were fighting was against spiritual beings. Revelation 12, the war in heaven. Notice the terms Paul uses. He calls them world rulers. That's from the Greek arche, which is... Arche has a wide range of meanings. Could mean a god, could mean a human. Authorities is exousia. It means power, ability, privilege. Those titles could be used of human or spiritual powers. But this is what the key here to this text is. Cosmic powers. This comes from the Greek word kosmokarator. Alright? Only used here in the New Testament. But it's used of spiritual beings in the Testament of Solomon, a pseudepigrapha literature. In the Dictionary of Deities and Demons, in the Bible, you've heard me mention this dictionary many times, kosmokarator means Lord of the World, World Ruler. It occurs in pagan literature as well of God's rulers and heavenly bodies. Now, here's my question. Why would Paul use this word that is used only once in the Bible, but is used in other literature for spiritual beings, unless he had intended to convey the idea of spiritual beings? All right, That's what they're fighting. He goes on to say, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So the forces are spiritual, they're in heaven, that's where the battle's taking place. Now, in the first century then, Their battle was with spiritual beings. It was a battle of the ages. Okay, The old covenant was coming to an end. The new covenant was being consummated. What about us? Well, I don't believe we're we're fighting Satan or spirit beings today because that battle was settled. The spiritual battle was unique to the first century saints. Now, if you've got questions on this, go on the website to Ephesians chapter 6. I've got a six-part series there on spiritual warfare. Let me add, I believe that we can find application in these verses to our life today. All right, We're not fighting a spiritual battle. We're not fighting Satan, demons, or gods. But as believers, we are in a battle with evil. <laughs> Hopefully, that's more uh, aware to you now than at any other time. All right, We battle worldviews and regulations of very evil non-believers. Very evil people. You don't understand the depth of the evil that's going on in this country, but I believe you will soon. I believe Glenn Maxwell, I mean, she's charged with crimes against humanity. All right, she's charged with child trafficking. She has videos of high-ranking officials having sex with underage children. She has videos of Hollywood people. She has the evidence And when the evidence comes out, people, we're going to see how evil this world is and how evil some of these people are. It's just nothing but sickening, all right? But like I said, 
hopefully it'll, I mean, Trump's been fighting this war for three years, and he's, a lot of these people are in prison already, more are being arrested, all right? But that battle, that heavenly spiritual battle was fought 2,000 years ago and was won by the Lord, all right? He defeated them, Psalm 82, very clearly, he defeated them. All right, back to our text. Overcomer. The word overcomer here is the Greek word nikau. That's the noun form. Nike, from which we get the word Nike. Now, when you think of Nike, you think hopefully a shoe manufacturer or you think of slave labor. You think of China. I don't know what you think of when you think of Nike. And that doesn't really matter. But the idea here is the Greeks love the word Nike. They actually had a goddess by the name of Nike. And this was the goddess of victory, the goddess of triumph. And the Greeks actually believed that victory could not be achieved by mortals, only by the gods. And so when Paul calls these believers overcomers, and remember, they're in the midst of a heated spiritual battle, and he says, you're overcomers. Look what Yeshua said, John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Here our Lord uses the cow of Himself. He used the verb form when He says, I have overcome the world. This is why we are conquerors. It's because we are in union with Christ through faith in Him. And listen, all Christ is and has, we are, we have because we're in Him. Now Paul uses a form of this word in Romans 8 also. He says, now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Paul says to the believers, you're not just conquerors. You're more than conquerors. You're not just nakao. He says you're hooper nakao. And the compound word here adds hooper would be saying like super. He's saying you're super conquerors. You're not just average of the run of the mill conquerors. You're super conquerors. We are ultimate conquerors, Paul goes on to say in the rest of this text. He says, for I'm sure. Now remember, they're in a battle. They're fighting. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Yeshua our Lord. How encouraging to tell people, listen, nothing. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how intense the battle gets. I don't care how bad your suffering is. Nothing will ever separate you from God's love. You're a super conqueror. Nothing can conquer us. We're super conquerors. We're unconquerable. We're overcomers. He says, for everyone who has been born of God. Now, everyone here is the Greek word pas, and it's in the neuter gender. Now, the New American Standard Bible translates this whatever. Not whoever, but whatever. In the next verse, he will speak of who, but here it's whatever is born of God. And I think he does this to stress the power of the new birth. Whatever's born of God. If, you, if you're born of God, you overcome. Literally, the text says in verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Present tense is continually overcoming the world. Very important that the Greek uses that tense here. It's habitual. It's permanent. It's ongoing. We are permanently triumphant, permanently conquerors. We can never lose. The victory can never be taken from us. This phrase, overcomes the world, is in the aorist tense, has overcome literally. It indicates a victory which has been achieved in the past, once for all, the effects of which go on. Now, what's this talking about? This is talking about Calvary, people. On Calvary, we became overcomers when we trusted in Christ. That victory was won. He paid the sin debt. There's nothing now that can separate us from Him because our debt is paid, and it's paid in full. It's an incredible thought, people. World here refers to the evil organized system of dominion that's opposed to God. That whole world, that everything is organized in the world against God. We see that very much in our society today. He says, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Victory is the noun form, nike, of the verb nikau, has overcome. Believers are overcomers and they continue to be overcomers in and through Christ's victory over them. Now, our faith here, get this if you can, all right? This is the only use of the noun form of pistis, faith, 
in all the writings of John. The only time John ever uses the noun is right here. When John says faith, so he's not necessarily meaning your personal faith by which you believe primarily, that's not his emphasis. What he has in mind here is that which you believe. That's the doctrine that you believe. The Word of God. That Yeshua is the Christ. Every Christian has overcome the world. Why? Because they trust that Yeshua is the Christ. That's the victory. The victory is in Christ. Believers, it is our faith in Christ that has given us the victory over the world. And the victory is permanent. And the victory is for everyone who has been born of God. And how do you know who has been born of God? Because they believe. Alright, so if you believe you've been born of God, therefore you're a conqueror, you're a victor, nothing will ever separate you from Christ. You don't have to worry about losing your salvation. You don't have to worry about God getting mad at you because you did this or did that. You're an overcomer. When Christ paid our sin debt, He didn't pay most of it. He didn't pay a whole lot of it. He didn't leave anything up to you, okay? It's all paid. Your past, your present, your future is paid. The debt is clear because he paid it. And you got to understand, it was paid. It's not that God looks at you and says, I'm going to slip you in the back door. I kind of like you. No, that's not justice. Justice had to be served. And justice was served when Christ paid for your sin. Paid in full. You know what's so cool? When you get to heaven, you deserve to be there. How cool is that? Don't you like walking in a place where you deserve to be? Amen. God gives us life, and we believe the gospel, and we're saved, and all the glory of our salvation goes to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, help us to grasp the fact that we are overcomers in you, and that we demonstrate a love for you by the obedient life we live. And Lord, it's not burdensome. We want to honor you through our lives. We want to glorify you through the things we do. Thank you, Father, for the gift of life. Help us to love our brother as you have loved us. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? Okay, good question here. From Jay Garber. He says, the commandments. The ten, Exodus 20, with the seven-day Sabbath? Or do we only go on... What's in the New Testament? What do you think about that? <laughs> do we, I mean, and this is a huge argument, okay? Do we go, when, we, when the commandments, does that mean all of them? What's interesting, the Lord reiterated all the Ten Commandments in the New, except for the Sabbath day. wonder why He left that one out. Yeah, but... Uh, you know why the Lord left that one out? Because He is our Sabbath rest. He's our Sabbath rest. We rest in Christ. So by the commandments, yes, I think it's referring to New Testament commands because we're not under the bondage of the Old Testament. Some of the regulations, some of the rules they had. You can't wear clothes that are you know, mixed with cotton and linen. and you, All these different rules, rules of diet, rules of whatever. You know, guess what we can eat? Whatever we want. Okay, that's what you can eat. You couldn't do that under the Old Covenant. You can eat whatever you want to eat. You're free to do that. And we are under the commands of Christ. Now, there's, there's two ways of looking at this. Okay, some people go by two M's. The Old Testament is mandatory unless it's been modified. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. I use two R's. The Old Testament is repealed unless repeated. Okay, so if Christ repeated it, that's, guess what? It's under the law of Christ. We're to keep the law of Christ. He told us, listen people, when, when they asked Christ about the commandments, and what do we got to do? What did He boil it down to? Two things. He took all of them and boiled it down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. That's all we got to do, people. How simple is that? Love God, love your neighbor. And these commandments that we see in the Bible are how we love God and love our neighbor. Just telling us how to do that. That's all. So yeah, good question. I know that wasn't the answer you wanted, but um, no, I believe that Christ is our Sabbath rest. That's why there's no commandment in the New Testament to keep the Sabbath. And people, it doesn't matter what day you worship on. We don't have to worship on Sunday. 
We can worship Saturday. We can worship Monday. We can worship whatever. We're not under law in the Bible to worship on a certain day or not a certain day. You know, we've chosen Sunday, and our society for the most part goes along with that because a lot of things are closed on Sunday and people have the day off or whatever, so that's when we worship. But we're free to worship whatever we want. We have a lot of freedom, people. A lot of freedom. Anybody else? 